0: Chapter 53 Mad Cassandra stood with Stella at Mrs. McAndrew's bedside. The woman, Stella called the dragon, stirred and struggled with the coverlet. The dragon's lunch tray, holding an untouched bowl of soup and an unopened packet of soda crackers, sat cockskew on the bedside table and Stella set it on the vanity top out of the way. She moved up beside Cassandra at the side of the bed and gazed down at the woman in the bed. Her sunken eyes were shut, and as Stella watched, one of Mrs. MacAndrew's claw-like hands crept out from under the bedclothes to rest atop the neatly turned-down sheet. Stella hesitated only a second before taking Mrs. MacAndrew's hand in her own. "'Mrs. Macandrew," she said. "'Alice? Hang on. We'll get somebody.' "'Stella looked sharply at Cassandra. "'Go and find Dr. Terry. I saw him not long ago. Check his office.' "'With tears in her eyes, Cassandra shook her wild head. "'I'll go find a can of beans and a spoon to eat them with. "'It worked to keep you from dying, Stella.' Stella was about to argue when Mad Cassandra vanished, leaving only a brief gust of air as the door closed behind her. Stella pulled her hand from Mrs. McAndrew's grasp. I'll search out the doctor for you. No, Alice McAndrew reached to take hold of her hand again. Don't go anywhere. Find a chair and sit with me. Stella looked about her and saw only one chair off in the corner. It was going to be a business to move. She geared up to do so. Not that one, Mrs. McAndrew said. That one's Chippendale. Stella espied the vanity dresser with its padded bench seat underneath. She supposed that was where Bellamy sat when she visited her grandmother. Wishing Bellamy could be here right now, Stella pulled out the seat and sat down at the dragon's bedside. I'll contact Bellamy, Stella said. Don't worry about your things. Bellamy will take care of the Macandrew treasure. The dragon snorted. Of course she will. She may be young, but she's a Macandrew. Stella remembered the hard eyes and stern set of Bellamy's shoulders the last time she'd spoken to the girl. She was a Macandrew, all right. I'll ask someone to phone her, and, But the dragon was shaking her head. You're my neighbor, Stella, Mrs. Macandrew said. Be neighborly. Just sit and hold my hand while I die. <laughs> You're not, Stella began. She wondered what she might possibly say to help the woman. It was not so long ago that stella herself had thought she was dying she'd been terrified but had tried so hard to pretend to be brave as alice macandrew had to be pretending now but why why are we expected to greet the end of our life as if it was nothing to fear who invented that particular guideline for the elderly It was natural to be afraid to die, to be terrified, as you would be if you lost your footing on a cliff's edge above a rock-scaled cliff while the waves pounded below, or if a footpad held you at gunpoint. Why were you allowed to feel terror at the wrong end of a criminal's gun, but not at the wrong end of your own long life? She breathed deeply. Now was not the time for outrage. It was the moment to bring comfort. Stella tried to think what she would have appreciated when she was lying alone upstairs. She said, Alice, would you like me to read you a favorite poem? I know a few by heart. Emily Dickinson, maybe. Shush, please don't talk, Mrs. McAndrew sighed. I'm trying to like you, and I can't easily do so if you talk. Are you sure? But Mrs. MacAndrew was always sure. Stella closed her mouth and tightened her hold on the other woman's hand. <laughs> the dragon grunted. And Stella had to admit that Alice MacAndrew was right. It was easier to like the dragon when she was silent she was tempted to tell her so but it occurred to Stella that it would be dishonorable in these circumstances to preempt a dying woman's last word and indeed turned out to be the last word with a final squeeze for Stella's fingers mrs. McAndrew drifted Away. Chapter 54. Perhaps Mad Cassandra had alerted the authorities to Mrs. Alice McAndrew's passing after all, for Dr. Terry soon arrived to take charge of poor Alice, and Cheryl led Stella from the room. Once in the corridor, Cheryl gave Stella a hug. She always liked you, Cheryl said. She would never admit it, though. Are you okay mrs ryman stella could find no words to answer but she nodded did you get your lunch okay maybe you should lie down stella nodded she was two steps from the door to her own room and the thought of lying down on her excellent mattress appealed but once cheryl had rejoined the doctor Stella took a few faltering steps along Daffodil Corridor, and then a few more. She would have given anything to be able to run along an outside street for block after block, arms pumping, legs hammering the miles away, but she could not. So she walked until she found herself near the laundry room outside the effects closet. Cassandra had brought Stella here once. Inside, it would be quiet, secret, solitary, dark. When she saw that the cleaners had left the movable cupboard on casters far enough to one side, Stella slipped inside the unlit effects closet and closed the door after her. She closed her eyes and pictured Alice MacAndrew's soft white hair, with its harlow waves and the crepe-like skin over her eyes. Your eyelids are the only bits of your face, Stella thought, that you'd never see in a mirror. And she supposed that must be why a person with closed eyelids appeared so vulnerable. Stella pressed her back against the door. Her heart was pounding so hard that she wondered it didn't, raise a rattle on the hinges and handle, feeling suddenly as if she were not alone in the room. She fumbled for the light switch on the wall to her right, but instead her fingers slipped into a cubby shelf and touched something soft. With an effort, she stopped herself from making a sound. The something soft would be a scarf or somebody's cardigan her eyes began to adjust a little to the darkness and she saw a tracing of light around the blinds of the window at the far end of the effects closet on either side of it the shelves showed themselves a little clearer although the objects inside them were mere shades and shadows of sharp angles and organic curves i'm sorry she said softly to the owners of all the effects. I don't know any of your names, except for Joy Hamaguchi, who owned that purple scarf Cassandra showed me last time I was here. She felt badly that she had always grouped these people into a faceless bunch of dead people, rather like those in the world outside the care home might group Fairmont Manor residents into an interchangeable set of old people. Still, in the calm little room, she felt here no sense of anger or reproach from the ones who had passed on. So she straightened her shoulders and switched on the light. She walked the length of the room, touching a hat here, a velvet coat collar there. Finding a collection of paperbacks on a lower shelf, she Cocked her head to make out the titles and was thrilled to find a collection of John McDonald's Travis McGee w- mysteries. She longed to reread them and imagined that the gentleman who left them would not mind if she borrowed them. She was about to remove the deep blue goodbye from its spot among its neighbors when her gaze came to rest on the red velvet box on the shelf next to it. It was the sort of box you would keep your trinkets in, combs and earrings, bits and bobs. Aside from the brilliant colour, there is nothing so very remarkable about it, nothing unusual at all, except for the initials on the top of the box, picked out in gold letters that shone against the deep red velvet. C. B. A small curlicue finished the C and began the B. Stella had a sleuth's mind and curiosity. She could not help turning over the letters in her imagination and thinking what first and last name the initials might represent. She wished she had not. Stella set the deep Blew, goodbye back on its shelf and backed slowly towards the door as she stepped outside the effects closet she told herself that she must not leap to any horrible conclusions there was any number of possible dead owners for a box with those particular initials for nobody could deny that many names in this world had the initials C.B. besides Mad Cassandra Browning. Chapter 55 Stella found her way to the door that led upstairs to Pallet of Care. It had to be about two o'clock in the afternoon, in a world with no Alice Macandrew in it, and perhaps without Mad Cassandra Browning either. Stella noticed for the first time the archway that had been painted above and around the door. There was something about an arched doorway that evoked old stories to Stella. The arch made her think of the word portal and of the door in the fairy tale Mr. Fox, a story she would not ever have considered reading aloud to her schoolchildren. It was a beautiful tale featuring a strong female protagonist who, in order to reveal the murderer at his own wedding banquet, casts the pale, severed hand of his previous bride across the table to land on his plate. Above the portal opening into Mr. Fox's murder room were carved the words, Abandon hope, all ye who enter here. And then there was the portal to Bluebeard's cache of slaughtered women and
1: were there any
0: good portals in fairy tales? Even the one in the Pied Piper, through which the children passed to a better world, left one boy leaning on his crutch as the rift between the hills clapped shut. To Stella's mind, that was the worst, to be left behind in one place while everyone you knew passed through to another." The elevator to the left of the portal opened. The nodder, Sally, stepped out, her eyes on her feet and her hand reaching for the steadying wall. "'Did you see Theo upstairs in palliative care?' Stella asked, although she knew better than to expect any more of an answer than a dirty look. The nodder obliged with a filthy glare. She walked off along the corridor, her steps as stiff as her attitude. At a touch, Stella turned and frowned Reliza, standing at her side. I'll take you up the elevator to see Theo, Stella. I don't want the elevator, Stella said. I've got two good legs, and I want to climb the stairs. Eliza hesitated, but followed Stella through the arched doorway to the stairs. This is not allowed, you know. I know. How's Theo? Stella asked Eliza as the younger woman helped her take the stairs. Eliza did not respond until they had struggled up the final step. At last she said, It's all right, Stella. That does not answer the question. The care worker gave Stella's shoulder an affectionate squeeze. They'll take very good care of him in the special care unit. The special care unit. Translation? Abandon hope, all ye who enter here. As they neared the door at the top of the stairs, she darted a glance at Reliza, and when she saw the distress on her face, she was certain for a terrible instant that, that things were for Theo even worse than Stella had imagined but on the other hand you could never be sure where another person's pain came from Reliza's distress might not have anything at all to do with Theo in fact the scene that Stella had witnessed in the warden's office between Dr. Terry and Reliza might easily be the cause of her worries they left the stairway and Stella found herself upstairs for the first time since the day she thought she was dying. She turned to her left, where a short corridor led to the room where Stella had come so close to achieving a dignified exit from life. Palliative care. The dying room. Her left shoulder grew suddenly chilled as they passed it. Stella caught a glimpse, just out of the corner of her eye, of a woman, white-haired and wearing a nightgown. The woman's face was wide open with distress. She was hurrying straight towards Stella and Reliza, but before she'd taken a dozen steps, she had disappeared. How strange memory is, Stella mused. I usually remember events from the inside out, but that was an outside-in memory. Watching herself leave the little dining room upstairs not so long ago, she could taste in memory the paste of Cassandra's baked beans. Stella and Eliza, much of a size despite the difference in their ages, walked arm in arm along the upstairs corridor. They walked more slowly even than Stella's pace demanded. The younger woman seemed lost in her thoughts. "'You're so sad, Eliza,' Stella said at last. "'What did Dr. Terry say to upset you so?' "'I can't tell you,' Eliza hesitated. "'But I would like to.' "'I'll keep it to myself,' Stella promised.' Am I right that the special care unit is down at the end of the corridor? They passed a couple of rooms to the right and left. The doors were propped open, revealing white curtains and blue walls so that Stella felt as if they were surrounded by ships on a windless day and she and Reliza were walking a long spit, pointing straight out to sea. The doctor Wants me to say very bad things about Mrs. Warren. Stella frowned. What sort of things does he want you to say? He... Eliza took a breath. He knows something about the director. Something about the way she's running Fairmount Manor. Stella thought back to what the cooks had said about the supplies situation. Out-of-date foods... The secretary whose job had not been filled. The mahogany dining room tables replaced by plastic and metal. It must all be connected somehow. Did he say what? Eliza quickened her step slightly and Stella sped up as well. I can't say. I could be fired. I'm sure you wouldn't be, Stella said but she knew the way working world rotated. Even if your union, or the law, protected you from dismissal, a reasonably adept administrator could make your life hell. Despite the girl's obvious reluctance to offer any details regarding the director's job or what Dr. Terry saw as her failure to do it properly, she had no more time to delve into it. For now, they stopped together outside the double door to the upstairs lounge of the special care unit. Stella had never been here before, or at least not that she could remember, but she felt in some way reassured. The lounge was not a room for dying in like the one where Stella had made her attempt. It was just a lounge for those under tight observation with Presumably a television. She could hear the muffled sounds of canned applause from their position outside the door. I have to go back, Eliza said. Can I leave you with Theo? Is that all right? All right, Stella answered faintly, feeling something like the nymph echo. You have to get back. Eliza held the door for her, and a moment later, Stella found herself apparently alone just inside the upstairs lounge. She was aware, first, of the windows with the same sail-like curtains. The streams of afternoon sunlight made her blink and squeeze her eyes shut for a moment to adjust to the light. Then there was the television, angled so as not to catch the worst of the glare, and the two sofas arranged before it. She became aware of the row of heads facing it. The heads topped the backs of the sofas like winter cabbages lined up on a table. It was an unkind thought. As she made her way deeper into the room, she realized that although she had always thought of herself as a kind person, She had spent her life thinking unkind thoughts. For example, she pictured these people as cabbages. She wondered whether it was the same for other people. Was everybody so whimsically, secretly cruel? She hoped so. No, she did not. Stella caught sight of Theo over by the windows Stella caught sight of Theo over by the windows. His head showed above the top of his chair, but because of his good hair, he looked nothing like a cabbage. Stella raked her own hair into place with her fingers, the same motion she had been making for about 70 years. Without willing herself to do so, she now approached Theo's chair. Her feet in the excellent lace-up shoes, Cassandra's gift, simply took her towards him, step by step. He sat in the middle chair of a row of three. Three. A fairy tale number, if there ever was one. The chairs were lined up at the window, facing the view. Stella lowered herself into the seat on his right hand. "'Hello, Theo,' she said. "'I've come to see you. "'I read your doctor's report. "'You went back outside last night after I went to bed.' "'He didn't look at her. "'You went back outside to look for cherry blossoms for me, "'and you fell in the dark. "'A car hit you.' "'He said nothing. "'He did not look angry.' He looked ahead, out the window. So they put you upstairs here to stop you wandering, so you won't go outside anymore, she added. I think that's rotten. You love wandering. When he still didn't answer, she stood up and faced him as straight on as she could in the space between the chairs and the window, searching his face for the of eye and mouth that followed a stroke. But his face was just as she remembered it, or almost so. The planes of his cheeks, the lines beneath his eyes and around his mouth looked subtly different. There was a looseness. Or perhaps there was an increased tension. Perhaps he's been given some sort of drug Or, maybe, Stella said to herself, maybe he's sad. I'm here to help Theo. She sat down at his side. Without knowing what else to do, she talked to him. About nothing, really. About books she had read, and how she would love to read aloud to him. She talked about the book she had always meant to write, had only managed to get about 30 pages into. About the time she had taught a 10-year-old to read and a trip she had taken to London. Had he visited there? Of course, he must have. And how much she had loved the steak and kidney pie, except for the kidney. Stella talked on, attempting to interest him to elicit some kind of liveliness in his features, some movement in his shoulders, a shift in posture. At some point, she reached out and took hold of his unresisting hand, dry as paper. Chapter 56 Stella might have sat staring out the window at Theo's side forever, if it had not been for the architects who had designed Fairmount Manor. For she gazed at rooftops, trees, and telephone lines. She couldn't help deducing that a team of architects had designed this building. Definitely not a single architect working alone. A single architect might have shown some sense, some flair, at least a hint of Elan. Only. Architecture by committee could be responsible for the flat roofed, two story cake box that was Fairmount Manor. She reasoned further that these architects, not satisfied with creating an edifice that was instantly forgettable inside and out, had positioned the upstairs lounge so that it looked out not over the North Shore Mountains and Burrard Inlet, a view that was the pride and delight of every Vancouverite including, no doubt, the architects. Instead, it looked out over a lot of houses towards Dunbar Street. Furthermore, Stella could bet that if a window did look north toward the mountains, it would be blocked by a stringy hemlock, or else visible only by standing tiptoe in a broom closet. Tchach! After a long gray moment, Stella became aware that she had said the word aloud, if tch was a word, which it certainly ought to be, a wordless word, like this viewless view before her. Still, looking at a lot of rooftops was better than staring at the wall or at a television. It was a strange truth that she had been unable to watch television since arriving at Fairmount Manor. She used to watch far too much television, especially during the six months that she'd been housebound before she checked herself into Fairmount Manor. However, she hadn't watched talk shows like the one that was playing to the row of heads on the other side of the upstairs lounge. No, she loved to watch old reruns. I loved Lucy, Mary Tyler Moore, Ironside, and The Streets of San Francisco. She sent away for the discs and played them over and over. She liked the hairstyles and the geometrically simple indoor sets and the way comedic timing made her laugh even when nothing except maybe Ted Baxter could have made Stella smile. Those old shows had kept her alive they had killed her, too, taking her days and nights in moments that became so identical that at last she lived in only one moment, the moment of sitting and accepting the rhythm of story. But now that she was here at Fairmount Manor, television terrified her, watching it seemed too much like leaning over a ledge to peer at something dangerous, like a smelter or a jagged rock island in a stormy sea. She was sure that if she kept looking into the screen, she'd lose her balance and fall to her death. Now, she thought, well, that's one way to go. She gazed out the window and wondered why it was more pleasant to look at rooftops under a grey sky than the royal of expressive transforming emotion going at the far side of the lounge where a reality program was showing a window had much the same shape as a television screen after all and a window like a television was for looking at she felt something warm under her palm she looked down and saw that she had without knowing it rested her hand on theo's wrist She watched to see whether he would, after all, respond. She squeezed his wrist tightly, but he made no sign that he knew she was there. Stella swallowed painfully and looked back out the window. If a window was for looking at, then so was a painting, and when she thought about it, A window was much more like a painting than a television set, especially this window with its rather static view. It had a frame, as paintings often have, and you brought more of yourself to a view or a painting than you needed to for television. But she had once heard an art teacher say that the four outside lines of a painting were its most important lines, They established what the parameters would be, without deciding on the content. What else did that? The covers of a book contained, without dictating, what the book would say, as did a newborn baby, certainly. How she missed her darling daughter, Junie. She let go of Theo's wrist and folded both her hands in her lap. Her baby had been growing up for decades now, but Stella still saw the whole world through a mother's eyes. Was it like that for everybody who had a child? Junie was lost to her now, so far away and so very angry. But even so, she was in front of Stella all the time. Her Junie Stella moved her arms against her chest to make an oblong cradle for her child. Stella heard singing. It was a humming sort of singing, the kind that occurs to a person who knows a song perfectly, except for most of the words. She didn't know the song. Most songs had more than three notes in her experience. She knew the singer. "'Cassandra,' she murmured. "'Cassie!' She opened her eyes and looked to her left. Dead or alive, mad Cassandra had taken a seat in the chair on Theo's other side. "'What am I to you?' Cassandra sang. "'Or you to me?' "'You're a shadow,' Stella answered uncertainly. Or a promise, if the promise is a threat. Cassandra made a squawking sound and fell back in her chair, splaying her legs and arms out. Her eyes rolled upwards and her tangled gray and white hair fell over the back of her chair, and she shouted, It's so hard to be friends with you, Stella Ryman! Cassandra's bellow was a bull roar. Stella turned but no care worker appeared. Theo sat unmoved. Not one of the heads watching television turned their way. Stella closed her eyes. She said, If I go to the effects closet and look inside the bottom cubby nearest the window, the one with the red velvet box initialed CB, what will I find? Will I find what's left of you, Cassandra Browning? There followed a long moment during which Cassandra made no reply. When Stella opened her eyes again, Mad Cassandra Browning was gone. Stella closed her eyes again, squeezing them so tight that she could feel her eyeballs bulge inside her head, she said, and I'm so angry with you, Cassandra. I've been angry before in my life, but right now I feel as if I'm more furious than I've ever been before. Almost before she'd finished speaking, one word hissed from Mad Cassandra's lap into Stella's ear. Good.